Are you a developer or conversational designer looking to excel in the latest AI platforms? Or maybe you're in marketing looking for the latest in audio branding and customer engagement. Or maybe you're a startup, a business owner, an investor, or simply want to know about the future of voice technology. Then Voice Summit held in Newark, New Jersey this July is for you. Get your ticket at voicesummit.ai. That's voicesummit.ai. We can't wait to hear your voice and meet you at the conference. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Inside Voice podcast. I'm your host, James Poulter, and this is the show that goes behind the scenes of everything that is happening in the lead up to this year's Voice Summit happening in Newark, New Jersey at the end of July. If you want more information about that, don't forget to head to the website voicesummit.ai. In this week's episode, Voice Summit Programming and Content Director Janice Mandel speaks with Steve Keller the Sonic Strategy Director for Pandora. That's the largest streaming music platform in the US. Prior to joining Pandora, Steve was the founder and CEO of IV, an audio consultancy based in Nashville that specialised in the strategy content, research and management necessary for a successful audio brand. Now, what does someone with 25 years of experience in the music industry and a BA in psychology do when his heart says Sonic Expression, but his head seeks out data? Well, like an alchemist, he blends science and art to explore how sound affects mood and behaviour. When it all works, he says, it seems like magic. Here's just a preview of what you'll hear from Steve as he takes the main stage at Voice Summit this July. And don't forget, he'll be doing some panels as well. That's where you're probably going to get the inside scoop on what Pandora is up to. So make sure to check those out too. Here is Janice Mandel with Steve Keller, Sonic Strategy Director for Pandora. So this is Steve Keller. Wow, Sonic Strategy Director for Pandora. That is a pretty impressive title. It is. It's a mouthful, as a Sonic Strategy Director title should be. I think it's been a very long and uh, creative road to get here, Steve. And I'd love to get our attendees a little hint at some of the excitement they're going to hear from you at um, Voice Summit this year. Sure. I'll kind of dive in and give you the story, the the sonic evolution of Steve Keller, as it were, because I, I always like hearing uh, backgrounds uh, because it's really interesting to follow people's journeys because there's all kinds of twists and turns. And it's encouraging to see just the way dots have connected along that journey. So, you know, for me, Music's always been a part of my life. I started taking piano lessons when I was a a child. I dreamed of being Beethoven. I wanted to be a classical composer. And then I got into junior high and discovered a guitar. So, uh, you know, left the classics behind, taught myself how to play guitar, started writing songs, not really thinking about anything as a career, but just because uh, it was a fairly effective dating tool in high school. (laughs) I didn't want to be the one to say that, but I know that's true. (laughs) So, you know, music, as I said, was just a huge part of my life, but I had never thought about doing anything professionally with it. Uh, Helping professions was something that I was also drawn to. And so when I graduated from high school, I headed to university and um, studied psychology. So that was my major. I was particularly interested in group dynamics and social psychology and graduated with my bachelor's. And uh, the plan was I was going to go on and pursue a master's and then a PhD and, and work in the field somehow. But I needed to sit out for a year 
make a little bit of money before I headed off to grad school. And I had a couple of different jobs. One was doing research and statistics for a community mental health organization. And the other was teaching at a school for uh, kids that had severe behavioral disorders. And in the meantime, I was continuing to play music performing some in coffee houses, continued to write. And I don't think there was really an aha moment. I think what happened was I just gave myself permission to actually think about doing something different. And so I went to my professors uh, and said, here's what I'm thinking about doing. Went to some mentors and told them the story. And everybody basically said, look, you're young, you have time, take another year off, see what happens. You can always go back to grad school. So that's what I did. And uh, I actually wound up in Nashville as a result of that journey, figured I needed to get somewhere where music was really in the, the culture. And Nashville seemed to be a place that just appreciated the craft of anything and everything music related. So I got to Nashville, very quickly discovered there were songwriters that were so much better than I could have ever dreamed to be. There were vocalists that would be able to sing circles around me, and that wasn't going to be my path. But I did find that I had a knack for production, and in a weird twist, wound up doing dance remixes of country songs. I was one of two guys in Nashville that actually knew how to do that. It was a period of time in the early 90s when um, these country dance clubs were exploding. People were coming in. They were doing these very sophisticated and choreographed line dances. And the DJs just didn't have anything to play. They only had what was coming from the labels. And, and the labels in Nashville had no idea what dance remix was or what that culture was like. So uh, I got my hands on uh, on a master and stripped the vocal off of it and created a dance mix from the ground up. And a couple of those eventually led to my working on a song called Indian Outlaw for a guy who at the time was an unknown. His name was Tim McGraw. So that was my ticket in. And that remix performed really well. And that led to a few others. And pretty soon I was working for all the major labels in town. And that led to just kind of doing some uh, independent production. And in that process, I started composing music for commercials. And I found that not only did I enjoy that, I actually liked advertising and branding. So I immersed myself in learning as much as I could about that world. I found I had a knack for writing copy, so I started getting hired as a freelance copywriter, which led to me coming up with concepts for advertising campaigns. And all of this kind of prepared me for a moment in 2005, where uh, I wound up in the driver's seat at a company called um, Ivy, which was a company that with a couple of partners I had purchased. And the business model was around creating music for advertising. But I saw the handwriting on the wall and what was happening in uh, the advertising world, how music was getting commoditized. Things were shifting very clearly. And I wanted to think about what was ahead in the future. And through the course of my research, I stumbled on some articles about this thing that was happening mostly in Europe called audio branding. And the more I read, the more I realized, wow, this is me. It was science and research and psychology. It was music and sound and entertainment. And it was branding and marketing strategy and creative practice. What year was that that you found that they were discussing this in Europe? This was 2005. Uh-huh. 
So at that point, there uh, was a couple of books that were out. So one of them was by a fellow by the name of Daniel Jackson, who uh, was one of the early authors and practitioners. And then I was finding more interesting articles from a research perspective, uh, from a science perspective. I felt like that was where I needed to be. So even though the company was in Nashville, I had met uh, a couple of folks along the line. One of them was a fellow named Uli Rees, who was actually from Frankfurt. And we started making some inquiries, and that led to one job, which then led to another. And before too long, we had established ourselves as one of the premier audio branding agencies in Europe. And that grew into more opportunities to bring that learning here to the States and just gave me a chance to learn more about the discipline, to practice it, to research it. The company eventually developed into more of a consultancy. That brought me back to academia. I was involved with a lot of researchers like Charles Spence, who heads up the Crossmodal Research Laboratory at Oxford University, and worked with Charles and one of his students at the time, Janice Wang, on looking at how sound and taste work together and how we could influence your perception of flavor, not just by what we were putting in your mouth, but also by what we were putting in your ears. Well, that is fascinating. I was wondering, you know, what we were going to get from you today besides a zinging sound when you use your credit card or something. Yes. I mean, my background, as I said, is from academia, going through this journey that I've taken you on through music and entertainment, and then into advertising, and then coming right back to the science of it. And at that point, that kind of thrust me into areas where I was really curious about the power of sound, not only how it affected us emotionally, but even uh, meaning. So i done some research with uh, Daniel Mullenseven and Christian Wong from uh, Goldsmiths University in London, where we were able to actually, for the first time, document the existence of musical archetypes that aren't just communicating emotion, but meaning. So we could change the narrative of a television spot, affect your perspective on what you were viewing simply by changing the music track and applying archetypal narratives there. And uh, other research that's kind of taken me back into to this area of food, working a lot with Charles and a chef, Yosef Youssef, from Kitchen Theory out of London on soundscapes that are part of multi-sensorial dining experiences. That led to other work for Chevis and Cadbury and Propel in this world of sonic seasonings. So all of this eventually brought me into the orbit of uh, this next evolution of my life, which was uh, with the company Pandora. I had met Lauren Nagel at a speaking event a couple of years ago, and um, we just both found that we hit it off professionally and personally. And she invited me to Oakland to uh, do a presentation on some of our work around strategy and identity. And that uh, led to being incorporated into some other Pandora presentations and um, helping them with some of their collateral. And eventually, they asked us to start working on uh, Pandora's sonic identity. And that happened last summer. And it was in the course of that, we looked deep into each other's eyes and really decided, you know, this was a match made in heaven. So we decided to put a ring on it. And uh, last December, Pandora hired me as the Sonic Strategy Director. 
So essentially what that means is that I'm spending my time at Pandora looking at how we can help brands and agencies be more strategic in their use of sound, certainly when it comes to the Pandora platform. But the work we're doing is really platform agnostic and diving deep into sonic identity, looking at how we can help brands shape that. If brands already have an identity, how we can help them amplify that the researching and testing side of things and bringing more qualitative metrics to understanding how sound can influence perception and behavior. And so I guess I would summarize this whole story by saying, in the end, I'm an audio alchemist, which means I blend science and I blend art into looking at how sound can affect our perception and behavior. And when it works, it seems like magic. Well, it certainly does. This is a lot more involved than I thought it was. I mean, where do you where do you get started as a brand? It sounds to me like you have been pushing the edge on this, sort of looking toward the future of these things and just, you know, going where that instinct leads you. And you have just met a community, the voice first community or the voice community, and it's just doing the same. It's just looking out at its uh, new frontier. Yeah. So what? how would they get started? How do companies get started? I think the voice first conversations have really helped raise the profile of audio for brands. If we kind of step back for a second and look at the use of sound in a, a commercial setting for brand messaging, there's never been any question that it's powerful. We all know that. We know that it affects us emotionally. We can think of those times in our lives when there's a particular song that might be associated with an event. It triggers different memories for us. Sounds will do the same thing. So that's never been a question. But the problem is when you look at brand behavior towards sound, you'll find that traditionally when it's thought about, it's the last thing in the chain. The campaign's already been done. If you're lucky, you may have thought about music at the beginning, but sometimes uh, it's an afterthought that happens in the editing bay. You have a script and eventually you get to a point where you think, well, somebody's going to have to read this, so I guess I need a voiceover. Maybe you think about sound design, but it's all a tactical execution. And, you know, those of us who have been practicing audio branding and thinking about sonic strategy have for quite a few years saying, what happens in a world where you can't see the brand? What happens in a world where there's no text involved and it's just your ears? How will people know that it's you? And what's happened in this world where we, we no longer have screens in front of us, where we're interacting with brands and, and communicating with our devices using our own voices, and they're speaking back to us, this is what I call the age of audio disruption. It's the new frontier. It's the ability for a renaissance to happen, and brands now are waking up and realizing, oh, wait, we are in this world. How are you going to communicate with us? How are you going to recognize us? So the good news is these conversations are driving brands to start thinking 
and becoming more intentional in their use of sound. The bad news is that we're creatures of habit, which means if we're not careful, we simply go automatically to that tactical execution. Oh, I need an audio logo. Oh, I need an Alexa skill. I need something for my Apple HomePod or for Google Play. And so in that race to get the tactical execution, the strategy is often forgot about again. Well, Steve, how does this start, though? Where do you begin and who should be on your team when you're really thinking this through? I would say you really begin by listening. I think a lot of times these initiatives start in thinking about, oh, you know, where do we find this sound that we're going to put on the brand? And sometimes it's just starting with the brand itself. You know, I mentioned some of the research into cross-modalism and how our senses work together. And a very simple exercise where you just write down a description of what your brand looks like, and then write down a description of what you think your brand sounds like. And start comparing notes and you start seeing some congruency there, some things that start matching. Can you give me an example of something that you've already worked through that? Sure. You know, one of the brands that we worked with in Germany, Ritter Sport, which is a a chocolate brand, we started by kind of going through a process of looking at how the brand had used sound in the past. And one of the things that we noticed was there was a special way they had designed their packaging and it had a little snap to it when you opened it. And um, this was a feature in all of the commercials, but we noticed the sound was really inconsistent. And as we started digging deeper, we found that the brand always relied on sound studios to provide the sound, which could be anything from the snapping of a carrot to a twig to who knows what else. So the outcome of that was we actually took the chocolate into the studio and they always loved uh, seeing me come to the studio with tons of chocolate. And we mic'd up the chocolate and we recorded what we called a, a product sound toolkit, which was basically a sound design toolkit of um, the sound in a lot of different ways, shapes, and forms that was uh, distributed to all of their content producers so that every time Ritter Sport, the sound of Ritter Sport opening was featured in a commercial, it was actually the sound of the product. So that's a simple way of showing how just by listening to what the brand's doing already, you understand it. But this is a process, you know, and and you're asking, you know, how does someone get started? And essentially, when we're thinking about audio from a brand perspective, it's like any branding exercise. If you're going to produce a visual brand, where do you start? You start with a period of discovery, looking at what are the brand attributes? What's the brand personality? What are things that are used in terms of symbols or or semiotics? You're an archaeologist, if you will, at that point, kind of uncovering everything you can about the brand. And then that moves you into a period of design. And what happens in that design process is we start thinking about how do we take these brand attributes, the brand colors, brand textures, things about the product, the personality, the values, and translate that into a sonic language. And that's where the science comes in, because we know from the research how we can use the building blocks of sound like tempo, timbre, harmony, modality. Is it major? Is it minor? The articulation of the notes and combine those in certain ways to hit certain emotional profiles or conjure up certain meaning of symbols. Well, of course, as a classical musician, you would know these things. Actually, a lot of musicians who have done this for a long time 
you know, for them, it's instinctual and it's channeling a muse. We can kind of point to the science about where this comes from. But if you are surrounded with the right creatives, you can get the end result. But again, you need to know where to steer them. And that's why the strategy is so important, because if we can, you know, develop a creative brief for our content creators, that's really around brand centric identifiers from a sound perspective, then nine times out of 10, they come back with some amazing pieces of content, whether it's an audio logo or a brand theme or how they're using their vocal instrument to interpret the brand that gives us a lot of options as we prototype. And then we get into testing with that. So, you know, we'll use all the information and the design techniques to create the sounds that are going to be used in whatever part of the what we call the sonic ecosystem, the places where you might hear these sounds, if it's part of voice activation, if it's on a telephony system, it's in a television commercial, if it's the sound of products making, and we test those. So there are a lot of different ways we can test and make sure we're getting feedback from users and consumers. And that helps us make final decisions around these assets. And once we have them, then that's kind of our sonic DNA, if you will. And the next step is figuring out how we're going to implement this across all the different consumer touch points. So if you have a brand theme or an audio logo or a brand voice, how would you use that in a voice first setting as part of a way of not only communicating and being communicated to, but communicating with a recognizable voice that builds an emotional connection with a user and isn't just a, a generic representation where the brand gets lost. It's a deep process and there are a lot of different entry points for brands. Some brands already have iconic assets and what they need to do is just look at how to amplify those assets and reframe them in a context, uh, voice first as an example. Some brands are just starting out and they need help along the way just to kind of build the briefs and the guiding principles. Some brands are already really sophisticated and maybe they just need some help with some additional testing and optimizing and maybe looking for ways that they can um, maximize the use in their sonic system. This work generates copyrights. That's one thing that people don't talk about a lot, but there's IP, brand themes, they're intangible assets that you can collateralize as you build equity in them over time and also generate revenue from royalty streams. It really is a much broader, deeper conversation that I think most people realize because, again, we're just used to, oh, I've got a commercial. I need a piece of music. Let me find something and throw against it. Right. Happy or sad. Yes, exactly. And again, to be fair, on a certain very simple level, that can work. But we're talking about is really concentrating on the ROI of the investment and thinking more in terms of understanding the choices you're making so that you can repeat them. It's not enough to know somebody likes a piece of music, but try and understand why it's working in this particular context so that the next time you go to choose a piece of music, or if you're trying to find some musical signatures that are going to be brand identifiers, you know what those things are. 
you know, you're not reinventing the wheel every time around. Fascinating stuff. I still want to find out about a little sound and taste. I can understand feeling happy or sad, but how do you make something taste different? Well, what we found is that Again, we have certain associations, and, and these are things that probably kind of developed over time and evolution. But if you think about your heart rate, and if we talk about something that's exciting, if we were going to translate excitement into musical terms, we would probably first start with tempo, a really fast tempo. And if you think about it, that kind of corresponds with a a fast uh, heart rate. And if we're listening to music that's a faster tempo, you'll find that we start, as we call it, being entrained to the rhythm of that music. It's why retail environments that are developing playlists in the background, sometimes they get so sophisticated that they get into what they call day parting, where at certain points in the day, if they want consumers to move faster or slower, they're simply changing the tempo of the music. We eat faster if we're listening to something that's fast-paced. And so as we think about sonic seasonings, we start to think about the way these things fit together. So for instance, what we found with spiciness was that fast tempos, a little bit of distortion, fast attack, fast decay, higher pitches, and it helps, understandably, if there's a little bit of a cultural cue. So rather than a more monotone Native American drumming pattern, you might go for more of a Brazilian samba. But if we put all of those together into a soundtrack, what we found is that people that are tasting something spicy and listening to the spicy soundtrack, it magnifies that experience. So we can do the same thing with sweet slower tempos, higher pitches, legato sounds tend to communicate sweetness. In fact, it's very common for us to talk about things that sound sweet. And if you stop and think about it, well, what makes it sound sweet? And it's these these very things. If we're thinking about dark roast coffee or, or something that's like a bitter chocolate, we would think of lower tones. And again, probably lower instrumentation like cellos and, and very legato instrumentation and maybe bordering on, on minor rather than major modalities. And all of these things the research shows us just magnifies the experience of flavor. So we've been able to actually, what we call it, hacking flavor perception and affecting people's perception of food and their experience of it. Now we're looking at how we apply that practically. One area could be healthcare. And you think about a, a, a diabetic patient that needs to cut sweetness out of their diet. Could we make their dessert taste sweeter by giving them a playlist or a restaurant where we found that uh, restaurants that are really loud and noisy, a couple of things happen. It dulls the flavor of the food, but it also increases the level of consumption. Now, some restaurants might say, well, that means a higher ticket price. But uh, if you look at the research, you already also realize the number one complaint about restaurant is the noise level. So you might up that ticket price once, but you'll not get a return consumer. So if you slow things down, you make the food more flavorable, you give someone a great experience, and that's where you're literally going to see the change. We've also found that certain soundtracks can, believe it or not, affect whether people at a restaurant will order healthy or unhealthy foods. Fascinating stuff, Steve. So it's all connected. 
I can't wait to hear what you have to say at Voice Summit this year. I mean, you're going to be on the main stage there and it's going to be very exciting. I'm wondering if you're going to be pulling back the curtain a little bit on Pandora and maybe how this falls into what Pandora is up to. Well, I think certainly in some of the panels, as we're discussing some things, we'll pull back the curtain. There's no secret there. You know, we've been very forward about what we're doing with our sonic identity internally. You know, we're, as we say, eating our own dog food. We're practicing what we preach. We thought it wasn't enough to simply be evangelists for sonic strategy and sonic identity. We needed to apply that to our own brand and actually turn Pandora into a premier case study for us, which we've done. So no doubt that'll come up in the conversation. I think, you know, the main thing I'll try to be emphasizing is this thoughtfulness, thinking strategically, kind of backing up a few steps and really kind of thinking about ROI and efficiencies and optimization. And um, I think this, the voice first world for us gives us an opportunity to re-engage sonically with audiences. And I think the more intentional brands are the ones that are going to win out. Because without a strategy, you run the risk of simply becoming nothing but noise in that environment. And nobody wants the noise. I think another metaphor that's wonderful for voice first is thinking about our own voices. And when you think about our own personal sonic identity, if you will, you know, as you and I have had a few conversations and as we continue to have more, we begin to recognize each other's voices. And, you know, depending on a situation, you're going to be able to tell whether I am happy or sad or being thoughtful or, or agitated or angry by the way I'm using my voice in that context. But you're still always recognizing my voice. There's something that you're starting to pick up on in terms of cues. And in advertising, in the past, we've gotten into the habit of changing our voice every time we have a conversation. So think about that. If the next time you talk to me, I had a totally different accent. I might be talking like this. Or, you know, I might be talking down here like this and have a totally different kind of an affect. And if every time you spoke with me, I was talking like a different person, first of all, you'd probably think I was nuts. Secondly, trust would go right out the window because you'd have no idea what you would get with every conversation. But stop to think about it. How many brands do that? on a regular basis. They change their voice, they change their sonic footprint with every campaign, with every short-term communication. And I think the brands that are going to win, really the brands that are winning now and will win even more in the future, are the brands that become these brands where we recognize their voices, they can communicate with a, a wealth and a depth of emotions and meet us in whatever context we happen to be in. And, and Voice First is certainly changing the way we're thinking about meeting consumers at different points in the day in different environments. And the more brands you know, develop the sonic properties that allow them to meet and communicate with their customers there, the more they're going to be able to make fans, to win the long-term race for brand engagement and identity. And that's where the real ROI for brands are, not on the short-term activations, but the long-term brand building. And audio is particularly suited for that. 
These are wonderful observations today, Steve. I really appreciate your taking the time to talk to us and we'll uh, be able to hear a little bit more. Excited to hear more from you. I'll be following your panels as well as the main stage. Well, I'm, I'm excited to be there. I'm excited to learn from other people. I always love it when I get to be the dumbest guy in the room, which is quite often. It means that, uh, you know, that I have an opportunity to learn. So I'm really looking forward to learning from the panelists and the sessions that are there. You know, Voice First is the Wild West. We're learning so much and we're learning it quickly. And adoption is just going through the roof. And we're seeing, you know, how consumer behavior is shifting as a result of this. And it's a time to begin to develop what are best practices here. And I'm just excited to be part of that world and just appreciate the opportunity to share my experience and knowledge and in giving back to be able to take away some experience and knowledge as well. That's fantastic. What is the biggest takeaway that you have so far? I mean, you must have learned something over the years, Steve. The biggest takeaway as it relates to voice first or? Yes. I think the biggest takeaway for me is that we're entering a world where our thoughts around search engine optimization and and how people search for things is changing because voice is really different from visual. It's really different from text and you can't apply the same kind of methodologies. You have to adapt them. And I think you know, the really fascinating thing for me is around artificial intelligence in machine learning and the application of voice there and seeing algorithms becoming more and more human and, you know, to the point where they are kind of uh, fooling us, if you will. And so that opens up this world of possibility. And, and I think this idea of how we operate in a voice first, voice only world, again, from a cycle perspective, I find that extremely interesting. And I also think it's going to open up a lot of ethical questions for us as well. So I'm looking forward to seeing how some of the presenters and panelists may scratch the surface of some of those ethical questions that are around this new technology too. Well, we'll be dealing with that at Voice Summit for sure. Well, Steve, thank you so much for your time today. This was really fun. Great. Yeah, I can't wait to hear your voice again. <laughs>